On June 11th of last year, Michael Packard woke up thinking that it was just any other Friday. Packard, a 56-year-old commercial diver from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, got in his vessel and put off the coast of Provincetown near Herring Cove Beach. He checked his gear, he put into the water, and his first two dives harvesting the lobster traps were relatively uneventful. His third dive is where it got exciting. As he approached the ocean floor about 10 feet away, he was, quote, hit by a freight train and everything went black. His dive mate, Josiah Mayo, would later testify that Packard had found himself in the mouth of an adolescent humpback whale. Interestingly, that is not a dissimilar situation to where we left our title character at the end of Jonah chapter 1 last week. If you have your Bible, you'll notice Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. God, the God of Israel, appointed, he, he commissioned, he specifically ordained a great fish to come and swallow Jonah. Now, that word great fish is, is very generic. It can legitimately mean almost anything that lives in the sea, anything from a whale to a shark to an abnormally large goldfish, if God so desired. We really don't know, and so frankly, I'm probably going to use a lot of words interchangeably tonight to refer to this creature because we can't know for sure exactly what it was. A great fish. God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah such that Jonah was literally in the insides of the fish three days and three nights. Now, many people over the course of centuries have rejected the Bible, rejected the Bible's authority and reliability based on the story of Jonah, actually based on that verse, verse 17, thinking that is absolutely impossible. The vast majority of people would call the story of Jonah, uh, you know, at best maybe a fable or a satire or at worst simply an outright lie. And if if you are someone who has had doubts about the story of Jonah, I would like to give you just a few brief responses. We won't spend a lot of time here, but just things, things to consider. Number one, recognize that it's not unreasonable to believe in things you have not personally experienced or even find to be unlikely. I'll give you an example. The year that Columbus sailed was 1492. How do you know that? Were any of you there? Of course not. You know because a reliable source passed that information along to you. Most of the information we have in our lives, we did not personally experience, but rather we got from other credible sources. And also, there's lots of things in your life that frankly you don't know how they work or understand them, but you believe them all the same. So, it's not unreasonable to believe in Jonah either. Number two, the reality is the story of Jonah is not all that unbelievable. In fact, there are many species of sea creatures that could swallow a man whole, including sperm whales and finback whales, both which have known populations in the Mediterranean Sea, not to mention all of the other horrible, massive things that I live my everyday life blissfully unaware of. <laughs> Number three, 
Jonah is not the most unbelievable part of Christianity. You see, if you have trouble with Jonah, you're going to have trouble with a lot of the Bible. Wait until you start reading about, about Moses standing the Red Sea up like walls on either side, or Jesus raising people from the dead, or, or better yet, God bringing the universe into existence by speaking it. Jonah is not our most outlandish claim. Number four, if you deny the truth of Jonah's story, you disagree with Jesus Christ, who affirmed the historicity of Jonah in his earthly ministry, Matthew chapter 12 and Luke chapter 11. But number five, and this is really where I'm going with this, you need this to be true. You see, if God is not powerful enough to command a fish to eat a man who, let's be honest, kind of deserved it, how in the world is God going to save you from the sin and death and eternal punishment in hell that you definitely deserve? You see, you, whether you admit it or not, you need the God of Jonah. You need a God who is ultimately powerful and yet is abundantly compassionate. The reality is if, if Jonah's fish is too difficult for your God, your God is too small, and he's not the God of the Bible. But the question that we're considering in Jonah chapter 2 tonight is not, could a man survive three days in the belly of the whale? You know what the answer is? Uh, yes, it happened. <laughs> in fact, you'll notice that the author is not very impressed by that detail. This is about the least dramatic way you could describe a man being inside a fish for three days. It says... He was inside the fish for three days. Thomas John Carlyle wrote, I was so obsessed with what was going on inside the whale that I missed seeing the drama inside of Jonah. He's half right. Jonathan warned us last week that we need to be careful to put the focus on the right thing. We need to be careful not to miss the big picture. Carlyle is right that if we focus too much on the whale, we'll miss what's going on with Jonah. But we must go even farther and say, if we too focus too much on Jonah, we miss the real big picture on the wonderful, amazing character of our God. You see, the question is not, could a man survive three days in the belly of a whale? Actually, what chapter 2 answers for us is, what goes through a man's mind while he is in the belly of a whale for three days? What would go through your mind if you were in the belly of a whale for three days? Michael Packard, when he was in the mouth of a humpback whale, said that he thought of his wife and sons. They were 12 and 15 years old at the time. I'm not sure exactly what I would think. I've had lots of thoughts this week as I thought about it. But Jonah also had thoughts from the belly of a great fish, and they teach us a lot. They teach us much about our God, about how gracious and compassionate he is, and about the saving heart of our God. So our theme for this evening, for Jonah chapter 2, even in the face of our sin and its consequences, we can trust in the saving heart of our God. You see, Jonah is in this incredible situation. Why? Because of his sin and rebellion, his disobedience to God's clear command, to God's word. And he's suffering the consequences of that sin. But even in that context... He trusts in the Lord. You and I, if, if we are truly one of God's people, we still sin 
And therefore, we still often bear consequences for that sin. It might be a lost friendship or tension in your marriage. It might be something physical like having to pay a fine or, or get a discipline or a spanking from your mom or dad. There are lots of times that we have to endure the consequences because of our sin, but even in that, we need to remember to trust in the saving heart of our God. If you have a Bible, let's read along. We'll start in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and we'll read through chapter 2. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Here in Jonah chapter 2, Jonah is going to get three reminders Three reminders, three actions, really, by God that remind him of God's saving heart. So, for us, three reminders about the saving heart of God. Number one, God hears humble prayers. He hears humble prayers. Notice verse one, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. Jonah prayed. He didn't have a whole lot of other options. There wasn't exactly a concierge in this hotel. What else was he to do? He could think or he could pray. Jonah prayed. But notice that it, even the narrator says that Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Even though Jonah had disobeyed and even though Jonah was bearing currently the consequences of his rebellion... The security of his relationship with God had not changed. The Lord his God. He prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. Matthew Henry simply says, he prayed in the fish's belly. No place is amiss for prayer. Maybe you and I ought to stop taking it for granted that we get to pray in the comfort of our beds and studies and restaurants. Maybe next time you pray, you should thank God that you're not praying from the belly of a fish. But verse 2 says, I called out of my distress to the Lord. It's a very interesting choice of words for Jonah. He says, I called out. Back in chapter 1, God asked him to call out, to cry out against Nineveh. 
and Jonah refused. Back in chapter 1, when he was on the ship in the middle of the storm, the captain asked him to call out to his God to save them, and Jonah refused. It's amazing what motivation you get when you are nearing the bottom of the ocean. Jonah called out of his distress. Out of his affliction and trouble, he called to the Lord and he answered me. God answered the prayer. Verse 2 goes on, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. Repeating what was said in the first half and, and emphasizing it, he cried from literally the belly of the grave, the depth of Sheol. Sheol is used often in the scripture to refer to the realm of the dead, the grave. Jonah is saying, I was on the brink of death and I cried for help. And you know what's amazing? God answered. How did he answer? Well, apparently, Jonah prayed something like, keep me from drowning. And then a fish ate him. And you say, hmm, be careful what you pray for. He was saved from drowning. The Lord did answer. In this verse, it seems that Jonah is most likely quoting or alluding to several psalms when he thought of these words. Psalm 18, verse 6, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. Psalm 88, 3, For my soul has had enough troubles, my life has drawn near to Sheol. Or Psalm 130, verse 1, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Matthew Henry wrote, when we are in affliction, we must pray. And though we bring our afflictions upon ourselves by our sins, yet if we pray in humility and godly sincerity, we shall be welcomed to the throne of grace as Jonah was. You see, even though Jonah is suffering the consequences of his own sin, he knows that the only thing he can do is to pray. Often, when we are under the conviction of sin, and we might even be enduring the consequences of that sin, we often run from prayer because we have a bad theology of God's relationship with us. We think, surely God won't want to talk to me right now. Well, why do we think that? Well, that's because that's what we are like. That's not what God is like. We need to pray. We have no other option. Where else could we turn? And just so you know, when we pray as one of God's people, we're not praying into a vacuum. We're not praying into outer space. Psalm 22, verse 24, when he cried to him for help, God heard. Psalm 120, verse 1, in my trouble I cried to the Lord and he answered me. Psalm 3, verse 4, I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me. Psalm 118:5. from my distress I called upon the Lord, the Lord answered me. Psalm 34, 17, the righteous cry and the Lord hears. The Lord hears our prayers, and yet we don't pray. Jonah says that he called upon God sincerely, earnestly, knowing that he needed help, and God answered. You understand that, that when we sin, when we are convicted of that sin, when we endure the consequences of that sin, it must drive us to humble prayer. We must pray to the Lord. God is always eager to listen and to forgive the humble heart. Do you pray? 
when you're in circumstances that are, that are life-changing, life-threatening circumstances, do you pray? Apparently being swallowed by a giant sea monster will make a man think and make a man pray. The first thing that Jonah is reminded of is that even though he had sinned against God, God was gracious enough to still hear his prayers. And even when we sin, God is gracious enough to hear our prayers. Jonah is reminded of a second overflow of the heart of God. Number two, God controls difficult circumstances. God controls our difficult circumstances. Look at verse 3. Jonah chapter 2, verse 3. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. Like when Joseph's brothers cast him into the dry pit before selling him, Jonah says, God, not the sailors, is the one who cast me into the deep, into the depths of the sea. You cast me into the very heart of the seas. I think you understand. Jonah is not splashing around in your neighborhood pool, okay? The Mediterranean Sea, on average, is over a mile deep. There are actually places not far from the coast of Israel that are almost a mile and a half deep. Jonah is in deep, crushing blackness in the very heart of the sea. He says, the current engulfed me and all your breakers and billows passed over me. The, the current, literally the river, it seems like even as he falls deeper and deeper into the water, he can feel the underwater currents uh, thrashing him and, and turning him around. It says they engulfed me. It either means they, they were encircling him or, or it might even be the idea that they were turning him. He was tossing and tumbling by the movement of the water says, your breakers and billows, two words for the waves of the ocean, passed over me. He's quoting here from Psalm 42, 7, all your breakers and waves have rolled over me. Well, surely when he first hit the water, he could see the waves on top of the ocean going past him. But it seems like as he sinks deeper, he is feeling that current and the movement of the water tossing him to and fro. Psalm 69, save me, O my God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. Psalm 69, 2. I do think it's funny that, that the psalmist, and, and with all integrity, writes this prayer in Psalm 69, comparing the situation therein to drowning. And they pray to God, God, I am so overwhelmed. It's like I can't even breathe. It's like the waters have flooded over me. And Jonah says, you have no idea how much I know how you feel. You don't even understand. That's exactly what's happening to me. And it's not just a stressful situation. I am literally drowning. Verse 4, Jonah says, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. I, I've been expelled. I, I've been driven out of the presence of God. Been dismissed from him. Alluding to Psalm 31, 22, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications. Isn't it ironic, though, that that's exactly what Jonah asked for? 
You see, in chapter 1, Jonah very literally tried to flee from God, and now he says, I feel very distant from God. You see, we can't ever truly escape God's presence. The psalmist says that if we go to the highest heights or the depths of Sheol, God's spirit is there. But our sin and rebellion can most definitely strain our relationship with God, just like it does our human relationships. Just like you might feel distant from your spouse or from a friend when you are in conflict with one another, the same is in our relationship with God. And you know, like I know, that sometimes when you just want to be left alone by your loved one, you very quickly realize how lonely that feels. Jonah wanted to get away from God, and now that he is away, he feels the weight of it. And yet, in verse 4, he has hope. I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Now, I don't believe that Jonah here is referring to the physical temple in Jerusalem because in verse 7, he's going to use the same term and, and talk about the place where God is. Rather, I think he's thinking spiritually. That is, that he is confident that no matter what happens in this scenario with him being inside a giant sea monster, he is confident in his eventual destination. I will look again on your holy temple. I will be with my God. It's very similar to what Job says in Job 19, verse 26. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. I know that even after my death, I will see God. Do you have that kind of hope? If I put you in the middle of a sea creature for three days, could you honestly say, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know what will happen eventually. I know that I will see God. I know that I will look again on your holy temple. Jonah goes on in verse 5. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. This, this water, it, it surrounded me up to the point of death. It, it literally says up to the neck. That doesn't mean he was standing in water up to his neck. We know that's not true. But up to the neck, in the, uh, to the very brink of his life. He's probably quoting from David's psalm in 2 Samuel 22, for the waves of death encompassed me. He says, encompassed me to the point of death. I was engulfed by the great deep, the furthest depths of the ocean. You remember in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, when God brings the worldwide flood, it says God burst open the fountains of the great deep. Jonah says, I've seen them. The great deep engulfed me. Psalm 69, 15, may the flood of water not overflow me nor the deep swallow me up. Also Psalm 88, 6. He says, the weeds were wrapped around my head. Apparently at some point he, he got tangled in seaweed or reeds of some kind. And now it's not only is he drowning and sinking to the bottom of the sea, but it's like he's tied up and in bondage. Jonah chapter 2, verse 6. I descended to the roots of of the mountains, where the mountains are formed, it says, Jonah went all the way down, all the way to the bottom, to the ocean floor where the mountains meet. He says, the earth and its bars were around me forever. It's the idea of, of even what we think of a jail cell or prison bars. 
Jonah says, I could feel my watery prison. I could feel the door closing behind me. I was dying. I was on the floor of the ocean, and the bars were going to be around me forever. might be alluding to Psalm 18. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. But notice at the beginning of verse 6, he says, I descended to the roots of the mountains. The word descended, it's very simple. It simply means to go down. What's interesting is we've already seen this word in Jonah. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says that he went down to Joppa. Chapter 1, verse 5, it says he went down into the ship. Chapter 2, verse 6, it says he went down to the roots of the mountain. You see, every time that we rely on our own wisdom and we make our own decisions, we are destined to go down. But you'll notice that at the end of verse 6, he says, you have brought up my life. The only hope for true success we have is that God would bring us up. You have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah's situation here is dire. He is sinking to the bottom of the ocean. His death is sure. He can feel it wrapping around him until God intervenes. Notice who is in control of this whole situation. Verse 3, you had cast me into the deep. All your breakers and billows passed over me. Why is he talking about the ocean as if it's God's? Because it is God's. Psalm 95, 5, the sea is his. He has made it. His hands form the dry land. Of course the ocean is God's. Luke 8, 25, you remember this story? Jesus does something miraculous. Then he turns to his disciples and says, where's your faith? And they were fearful and amazed. And they said, who is this who commands the wind and the waves? And they obey him. They knew exactly who Jesus was, the one who owns the sea, the one who made it. God is in control of Jonah's situation, even at the bottom of the ocean. Do you see that? You can't go anywhere where God is not in control, not even to the bottom of the sea. And Jonah says, you have brought up my life. Quoting Psalm 30, verse 3, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. Perhaps alluding to Psalm 71, 20 and Psalm 103, 4. Do you see that? God is sovereign over your circumstances, good or bad, even the most difficult ones. God is still in perfect control. Whether you're living in a season of blessing and rest or you are living in a season of trouble and affliction, God is in control. Whether your affliction is the result of someone else's sin against you, whether it's the result of living in a sin-cursed world, whether it's a result of your own sin and bearing the consequences of it, God is still in control. He ordains our trials. He rescues us from our trials. It's almost like we should trust in God. <laughs> he controls difficult circumstances. Jonah's reminded that God still hears humble prayers and God still controls difficult circumstances. Number three, 
Jonah is also reminded that God saves repentant sinners. Another manifestation of God's saving heart is that he saves repentant sinners. Verse 7, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. While I was fainting away, the idea is to be weak without any strength left, brought to the point of death. It's almost like, like Jonah's saying, I could feel it closing in. I felt the tunnel vision coming. Everything was going black. And with my very last thought, I remembered the Lord. I called to mind the Lord. You remember the story in Luke chapter 15 of the, uh, the prodigal son, we call it, right? The son who takes his father's inheritance, he goes to a distant land, and he squanders the fortune on, on all kinds of foolish things. Eventually, he's, he's made to serve the pigs, and, and when he sees the pigs eating, he's jealous. Brought to the end of himself. And I love what it says in Luke 15, 17. It says, when he came to his senses. I think this is what's happening to Jonah. So he hits the ocean floor with weeds tied around him. He has no breath left. And he says, I remembered the Lord. Jonah came to his senses, just like the prodigal son. Why a lot of commentators have taken to call Jonah the Old Testament prodigal. He says, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Psalm 11, verse 4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Jonah, with perhaps one of his last coherent thoughts before God intervenes, remembers the Lord and prays. Can I ask you, beg you, remember the Lord we so easily forget. We so easily start seeking solutions in all kinds of other things, in all kinds of other people, in our own skills and our own wisdom. But we need to stop. We need to remember that there is a God who saves, who gives us what we need. We can't wait till we are at the end of our rope to remember the Lord like Jonah. May we not think of prayer as a last resort. Prayer needs to be a first priority. Verse 8, Jonah goes on. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. This verse has been difficult to translate, and there's been a variety of interpretations. Those who regard is, it literally means the ones who keep but it's an intensive form, so it, it really means someone who follows after, someone who cares for. And then it says, those who regard vain idols, and it's two very similar words put together. You could actually translate it vain vanities or, or, or worthless futilities, something like that. So those who follow, those who follow after vain vanities, these idols, well, he's most likely quoting from Psalm 31.6, I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. You see, he says they forsake their faithfulness, to, to forsake, to leave behind, to abandon, to forfeit. And it says they forsake their faithfulness. And you guys know this word. It's, it's the word hesed, the, 
loyal, steadfast love of God. So what does it mean that that they forsake their faithfulness? Well, there's two options, two interpretive options. One is that, that these people, when they realize that their gods are false, they will forsake their faithfulness to those gods, and rather they will turn to the true God, like the sailors did at the end of chapter one. Well, the problem is that Jonah might be thinking that, but he wouldn't be thinking that about the sailors because, well, he wasn't there. He was halfway down the Mediterranean. The second option, which I think is more likely, is the interpretation is they will forfeit the steadfast love from God if they continue regarding their vain idols. You see, those who go after idols forsake the faithfulness that comes from God. We see that because in verse 9, he draws a contrast. They forsake God by pursuing their idols. But verse 9, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. I will sacrifice. I will bring an offering to you, God, with a voice of thanksgiving. Well, thanksgiving for what? Saving him from the fish? Well, it hasn't happened yet. It'll happen in a couple of verses. Saving him from being drowned, now being swallowed instead. Maybe. But I think it's better to think in, in more spiritual terms. James Montgomery Boyce says it this way. Jonah wasn't thankful that God had delivered him from the fish because God had not delivered him yet. He was not thankful that God was going to deliver him because he had no idea that God was going to do it. What he was thankful for was that God had turned him from rebellion and had caused him to call on the name of the Lord once again. He was thankful for salvation. He was thankful for the abiding grace of God, end quote. I think that's exactly right. Jonah realizes that the situation he's in only has hope because his eternal salvation is secure. He is offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God for the salvation he has. Those who regard vain idols forsake the steadfast love that they could have, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. Who or what do you worship? What do you find satisfaction in? What do you follow after, if you will? Well, know that it, if, it, if it is not God, if it is not the God of the Bible, you are pursuing vain vanities, things that are worthless, things that will go away. If you worship anything but God, it's simply a waste. We cannot regard idols, but rather we need to say with Jonah, salvation is from the Lord. You notice he says, that which I have vowed, I will pay. This is, is Jonah's commitment, his commitment to obedience, his commitment to follow after the Lord his God. Probably quoting from Psalm 50, verse 14 and verse 23, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. We're almost done with the prayer, but I want to stop there and ask if you've noticed anything interesting about Jonah's prayer. You notice anything interesting about where he gets his source material? You might not have been counting, but that's okay. I was counting for you. Jonah very possibly has alluded to 17 different psalms in this prayer. 
I made a joke at the beginning about how he didn't have a whole lot of other options or things to do, did he? He was simply there with his own thoughts. So my challenge to you and to me is if I cast you into the sea and you were swallowed by a giant sea monster, how many psalms could you allude to in your prayers? Jonah clearly had read and studied the scriptures. John McKay says this, its many references to the Psalms reflect Jonah's knowledge of the scripture. Rather than being an artificial composition from various sources, it is simply the natural utterance of someone well-versed in scripture. While he was meditating upon the strange providence of God that had brought him into this situation, Jonah naturally employed words and phrases he had often previously heard and no doubt used himself. But now in his affliction, he finds a new depth to them. How much truth do you have hidden in your heart? How much of the scripture do you carry with you all the time? Jonah was a sinful and rebellious man for a time, but when he was cast into the sea, when he was humbled by God and he turned to pray, he had words to pray with. He called upon his knowledge of the Psalms and the scripture. The end of verse 9, at the end of his prayer, he quotes one more time from Psalm 3, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Salvation is from the Lord. You understand that this is the cry of every true believer's heart. This is what we have come to understand, that we cannot save ourselves. We have no capacity, no power. At our best, spiritually speaking, we are in a worse situation than Jonah. We are dead men at the bottom of the sea. But God has brought up our lives from the pit. God is our salvation. It's the cry of every true believer's heart. And frankly, it will be the cry of our heart for all eternity. Revelation 7.10, they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jonah knows that God is a saving God. God is a patient and merciful God and he still listens to our prayers. God is a powerful and sovereign God and he controls even our most difficult circumstances. God is a merciful and compassionate God, and he saves repentant sinners. Verse 10 reverts to the narrator. Then the Lord literally spoke to the fish, and it got sick, Jonah up onto the dry land. Michael Packard was only in the mouth of the whale for about 40 seconds, and then he was spit back into the air, landed in the ocean, and he was recovered by his dive mates, miraculously, with only soft tissue injuries. Jonah spent three days in this creature, in the fish, and he was spat up onto the dry land. We don't know where, perhaps back near Joppa where he started, you remember back in chapter 1, it says the seamen were trying to row back towards the land. It's possible they never even got very far. But you'll remember that God is not just the God of the sea, although that is his. He has made it. Jonah also admitted, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made both the sea 
and the dry land. Just because Jonah is back on dry land doesn't mean that he is out of the reach of God. God owns them both. The Bible Knowledge Commentary comments that seven miracles have taken place already in this short narrative. God caused a violent storm. He had the lot fall on Jonah. He calmed the sea when Jonah was thrown overboard. He commanded the fish to swallow Jonah. He had the fish transport him safely, had the fish throw Jonah up on dry land. And greatest of all, he melted the prophet's heart. So we come to the end of Jonah chapter 2. We've learned a lot already, but I'd like to point out a few lessons as we wrap up. Four lessons from Jonah 2. Number one, Jonah's story is a reminder of God's control over his creation. God bringing this fish, ordaining it, commissioning this fish for a special task to bring Jonah back to the land. Just so you know... (laughs) God is in control of his creation. No hurricane, no earthquake, no tornado, no heat index of 114 is out of the control of God. And we need to stop thinking and talking like it is. God is in perfect sovereign control of his creation. Number two, Jonah's story is instructive of how we should respond when disciplined for our sin. Hopefully, we can respond sooner than Jonah did. But ultimately, did you see the humility come from his heart? He cried out for help. He had no answers. He needed God. He called out to the Lord his God. When we are disciplined for our sin, we ought to humble ourselves, submit ourselves to the sovereignty of God, and thank him for saving us. Number three... Jonah's story is a picture of our salvation. Obviously, you saw as we went through that it was a a description of Jonah's physical salvation from drowning, but I think you saw, like I did, a very clear picture of God saving sinners. We saw uh, Jonah's faith when he, uh, the narrator says he called on his God, or in verse 4 when he says, nevertheless, I will look again on your holy temple, or even in verse 9 where he declares salvation is from the Lord expressions of Jonah's faith. And I think we also see expression of Jonah's repentance and obedience there in verse 9, I will sacrifice to you and I will pay the vow that I owe. You see, we are the dead men on the bottom of the sea and yet God is the one who saves us. He brings us up from the pit. It's a picture of our salvation. But number four, maybe most interestingly, Jonah's story is a picture of Jesus, our Savior. Turn over to Matthew chapter 12 with me, just for a moment. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has been interacting with the scribes and Pharisees over a number of different topics. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, the scribes and Pharisees make a demand of Jesus. Verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We want a miracle. Jesus was quite fed up at that point, and he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. You say, well, what is the sign of Jonah the prophet? 
Jesus explains. Verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is the sign of Jonah? It's the sign of Jonah. He's standing there on the shore, alive, three days after he was cast into the ocean, and now with a very distinct smell about him. The sign of Jonah, he's here after three days in the belly of the sea monster. You see, a guy is not supposed to spend three days in the belly of something and come out alive, much less spiritually recentered. But guess what? He did. And a guy is not supposed to spend three days dead inside a tomb and come out alive either, much less victorious over sin and death. But guess what? He did. Jesus, the sign of Jonah, performed to perfection three days in the heart of the earth and brought back to life by the power of God, resurrected, victorious over death and sin. Matthew Henry wraps it up this way. He only can work salvation, and he can do it be the danger and distress ever so great. He has promised salvation to his people that trust in him. Salvation is still of him as it has always been. From him alone it is to be expected, and on him we are to depend for it. Jonah's experience shall encourage others in all ages to trust in God as the God of their salvation. All that read this story shall say with assurance, say with admiration, that salvation is of the Lord and is sure to all that belong to him. If you are not in Christ, you need to know a few things. God is the God of the sea and the dry land. He's created everything and he is responsible for you. He calls you to a life of holiness and repentance and obedience to him. You're a sinner. Spiritually speaking, you don't even have a capacity to please God. You are dead at the bottom of the ocean. And yet God, in his sovereign grace, is willing to bring up your life. If you repent and place your faith wholly in Jesus Christ, the Savior, the one who the earth could not keep, but rose in power. If you are in Christ, <laughs> I hope you're encouraged that we fail. We fail spectacularly sometimes, but hopefully God doesn't require a long weekend and a sea monster to bring you to your senses. Keep short accounts, repent of your sin, and continue to love and obey the God whom we love a gracious, compassionate, saving God. The deep, deep love of God extended to his people. Let's pray together.